guess we'll get it underway. We're at 931. Um, I'm Nathan. Hello. And um, I guess we'll start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we um, gather on your Lord's, on the Lord's Day here and we come to worship as a congregation. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, in this first teaching to be able to perceive you more clearly, that you'd send your Holy Spirit and illuminate our understanding of you, that we'd be able to, that it would enliven and invigorate our worship today at the, and come to the table in fellowship with you. Give me grace to help communicate the things that you've put on my heart. Bless your name, amen. All right, so this is a first try. We're going to see how this works. Um, I'm going to more or less be reading out of this, but we are also going to have a lot of lengthy scripture passages, so please have your pew Bibles or your phones ready. We'll be doing what I remember calling in Sunday school sword drills. Look up things over and over and over again all over the place. The title of the message would be The Feet of Christ. Um, the purpose of the message would be to introduce imagery studies as a way to get more out of your scripture reading and to employ our holy imagination to speak the language of the images that God has written into scripture. Uh, we utilize a book called Through New Eyes by James Jordan. Uh, it's an introduction to typology and symbolism and stuff. Um, we'll be using some of those techniques and methods in this exercise, if you will, but um, it's very much cursory. It's not in-depth as much, and um, the book Through New Eyes really helps to uh, read the Bible, I guess, um, what they call an imaginative way. It's not um, fanciful, but rather imaginative, uh, connecting the images and the symbols within Scripture to be able to draw out um, consistent themes throughout the whole of the text. So um, that's a really good book. It's on our foundational reading list, but I really enjoy it, and James Jordan is an author. And Catherine uh, reignited me to uh, some of his podcasts and stuff that's really helped a lot in um, thinking about this message. But we're going to try to engage in a topical imagery study today. I want to kind of model that and show some of the ways to engage with that. It's not quite true symbolism or typology, but it's an introductory uh, study nonetheless. The reason I found this to be pertinent is because, um, I don't know about you guys, but as I read the scriptures over and over and over again, year after year, sometimes I can find myself reading the same passages the same way with the same paradigms. And so to try, sometimes it can get draw, therefore. I mean, how many times has anybody ever had a boring experience reading scripture? <laughs> it shouldn't be that, right? Uh, this is the word of God. This is his revelation to us. I don't ever want to have a boring experience in scripture. So one of the things that's really um, reignited my pursuit is this topic of imagery and symbolism and typology. That's helped me to see a whole bunch of new things out of the text. And I kind of want to, I hope to communicate that to you. And uh, maybe it will encourage you to enjoy scripture reading that much more. God's word is the greatest gift we've ever received apart from the person of Christ himself and the Holy Spirit. And it is of him that these testify. I don't want my devotional life to be stale or dry and neither should you. So today we'll practice doing that. A topical imagery search through the whole scripture and begin to knit together the coherent language of God in scripture. 
common themes that are regularly found in the Bible. And we've taught on a number of these before, but uh, mountain pictures throughout Scripture, that's a consistent thing that occurs all throughout the whole of text, all through the Old Testament and the New Testament is mountains. Bread and wine, common imagery. Oil and water being images of the Holy Spirit. Crowns, servants, the, what's called the bridal paradigm. Um, the faithful remnant is seen throughout Scripture. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the forbidden fruit is a theme. The child of promise, God calling a people into himself, wheat and tares, seed being sown into the ground, being a picture of resurrection and baptism, etc., etc., etc. You get the point. These are things that are consistent themes throughout Scripture that will help us understand the ways of God in creation. How he deals with us in creation, but also how we are to engage with him and the creation around us. They are thematic patterns and recurring images that help us encounter the author of Scripture by beginning to speak his language. There is one author of Scripture, namely the Holy Spirit, and just as with any author, you can discern his literary voice by seeing similarities and patterns in the whole of Scripture throughout thousands of years and many co-authors. To do this, we must read the Scripture and employ our imagination, a purely immaterial faculty, and, or sense that God designed to help us connect and relate the spiritual and the physical dimensions of the universe. We, of course, know that reality is composed of spiritual and material dimensions. We, as image bearers of God, find ourselves with the capacity to discern and engage in both dimensions so that they are one reality. Currently, we live in a world that has bucked against modernity's highest principle of rationality or rationalism which was a way for Enlightenment philosophers to despiritualize their reality and separate their experience of that reality from the God who created it. Surprise, it didn't work. And the world has therefore rebelled against that rationalism by a resurgence of occult and spiritual themes ever apparent in our culture, especially in theater and literature. Every man has a spirit, and his spirit desires life and fellowship with the transcendent. God has placed eternity in the heart of every man, deep cries unto deep. This is what has caused this resurgence and fascination with the occult and spiritual or metaphysical themes. For example, we as millennials have been strongly influenced by a man named Disney. He taught us to use our imagination to wish upon a star for anything we wanted and our dreams would come true. Understandably so, this application of the imagination and magic is demonic and has been shunned by many a Christian parent. And no, I'm not advocating that you shouldn't watch Disney movies, but just realize how they've influenced our entire generation. This is something I rarely wrestle with because that's what we grew up on. And how magic, or um, excuse me, and how that media house incorporates those very spiritual and occult themes into all their products. He did key on one important topic, the power and usefulness of the imagination. The problem is this, however. What shall we do with our imagination? What's the redeemed, God-honoring application of something so intimate and spiritual yet regularly misapplied and subtle? I believe sincerely that our imaginations, inspired by the Holy Spirit and being steeped in biblical studies, can provoke us to a more intimate and powerful worship of Jesus Christ. This is why we need the scriptures to help us in renewing our mind to think on the things or images that his Holy Spirit reveals to us concerning Christ and his kingdom in the scripture themselves. We can be assured that being grounded in scripture and inspired by the Holy Spirit, we may indeed employ our imaginations for the purpose they were given, to worship God alone. 
So today we're going to do an, uh, an imagination exercise in biblical imagery. <laughs> Since Christ and his kingdom is the purpose and point of scripture, we should very easily be able to perceive images and attributes of Christ and love him more because of it. One of my favorite passages to gaze at Christ with my holy imagination is the list of descriptive images found in Revelation 1. So if you have your Bibles, that would be a good place to turn. We'll read that whole chapter. Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which, by the way, is the whole point of the entire book. It says it right there in the onset. The whole point of Revelation is to understand and know Christ as he is revealed in glory. Which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. I'm going to keep a tally of all the pictures. I'm going to hold my hand up, and my hand is indicating how many pictures of Christ we can, or at least some of them, that we can identify. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. The Nazbi says, when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and then Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So I had about 19. I'm sure you could pull a few more out of there. But those are all individual images of Christ that, can be, that are thematic throughout Scripture, and you can pull out 
a bunch of scriptures out of each and every one of those. So that's, that'll keep you busy. Revelation 2 is our next passage. It's starting in verse 18, the letter to Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. This is the important part, verse 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For the purpose of our... uh, For our purposes in these passages, I'm not as concerned about the corrections given to the church as much as the particular attributes of Christ, namely the burnished bronze feet and eyes of flaming fire, and how they are necessary revelations of his character for the church to comprehend in order to overcome and persevere. Each of the messages to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 carry a similar structure, which we won't have time to fully develop, but this, this structure reveals, one, a particular aspect of Christ, taken from the list in chapter one, mind you, two, a commendation and or criticism of the church, and three, a word of encouragement with a promise. All of the different messages have that same sort of structure. These are very specific and necessary as, the, as each revelation of the Lord will help each specific church at specific times. And they remain valid and applicable to the church today. That's all that we have to say about that. But in order to narrow our study a little bit further, I want to focus specifically on the image of the feet of Christ in these two passages. Burnished or polished feet made of bronze and the fact that they are glowing hot. But remember the the language that was used in the letter uh, of the promise. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, rule him with a rod of iron, and so forth. Compare that language to Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm, if not the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The Lord's, and this is another one you could run to, Psalm 110 if you want. We'll read the whole psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, possibly a morning star image. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings on the, earth, on the day of his wrath. 
He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's important to recognize that in verse 1, there's the picture of enemies under his feet as a footstool. And in verse 7, he will lift up his head. This is a picture of the whole body of Christ. That's an image of the church, therefore. Another good, uh, two other passages, Malachi 4, uh, verses 1 through 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked. You trod with your feet, for they have, will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. We can see these feet images and victory over enemies and trotting the enemies and so forth. Enemies humbled under the feet. That's a consistent pattern here. Isaiah 63, 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Vicious little passage there. The images of ruling and dominion from the throne room in the psalm are the same language and images applied in the promise given to the persevering church in Thyatira. Also, the trampling of the enemies of God in Isaiah 63 demonstrate another glorious picture of the power, dominion, victory, and judgment of Christ over all the nations. Notice that the enemies in all these passages are under the feet of Christ. That is a direct picture of Christ, yes, but Christ rules the nations very much through his representation in the church. These are indeed images and promises to the church which is why in Malachi 4, it's addressed, but for you who fear my name, you shall tread down the wicked. The same pattern, the same images that are applied to Christ are immediately applied to the church. We will continue to build upon this imagery as we examine more passages, but for now, we'll make the observation that Christ's dominion and glory is indeed promised and shared by him with the church. The body and the head are in union. This is a major point when reading scripture and considering the metaphors of Christ. What applies to him has direct application to us as his body. So when we consider the feet of Christ as a persistent image in scripture, we must necessarily also observe our portion in that text when Christ is being described. So, some other feet passages to elaborate on this Christ-church union or the doctrine of totus Christus for you theology lovers out there. Genesis 3.14 The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Ruth 3, where Ruth lies at the feet of Boaz while he sleeps. That's too dense to unpack today, but Boaz is a type of Christ, and Ruth a type of the church. And that passage is very rich with imagery. Deuteronomy 11.24 Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. That's repeated in Joshua 1.3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Joshua 3, when the people of Israel are entering the promised land, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark, the Lord of all the earth, the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away, at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finally passed over the Jordan. In this Joshua passage, sorry, these are long readings, I know, but in this Joshua passage, the people of God are entering the Promised Land. The picture here is of the presence of God, manifest above the ark, carried by men, going wherever men tread, or at least wherever the priests are led. This is a type of the abiding presence of God going with his people. This is a type and image fully consummated in the New Testament reality of the church after Pentecost. Not just the presence of God, but his dominion and power and kingdom go wherever the church goes. This is the promise to Moses and Joshua. The extension of the kingdom of God goes where the church walks with their feet. This is extremely rich imagery. And so at this point, we want to pause and we're starting to consider and starting to wrap up a bunch of different scriptures about feet. And we're going to like overlay them in that sense, right? That's what we're doing in our mind and our imaginations. We're overlaying them so that we can start to see the patterns and similarities and how they actually flesh out some conclusions, This particular passage is super, super important to me when I sit there and I think about how I'm supposed to be walking before God in the earth with an understanding of his abiding presence going with me. And whenever we step forward, whenever I would walk into any situation, I'm extending the kingdom into that situation. That's a pattern for us as Christians. That's part of the identity that he's given us. That's part of our priestly functions is to carry the presence into the earth. This makes me more and more aware that I'm an ambassador of the kingdom with his abiding presence dwelling within me wherever I go. This is so necessary for us to comprehend as we walk before the Lord and through the earth. If we tie Ephesians 6, which is the armor of God, which I think is actually going to be spoken of in the second message, um, the feet, they're shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
We will go forth proclaiming good news, the gospel of peace, and extend his kingdom along the way as we walk. This is also to help us develop that rich imagery. Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We can see the dynamic of the church's role in going forth, proclaiming both specifically and implied in these passages, while observing the imagery of feet. Again, the head and the body are in union. Where the people of God go, there his presence goes. They go together. It's very clear cut. Okay, so obviously, this is not an exhaustive list of every time feet are mentioned in the Old Testament, but this should establish the method we are employing today to equip us to engage in this type of imagery study in the future. And of course, you can go much deeper into something as seemingly benign as feet. But shifting gears, let's focus now more intimately on the feet of Christ in the Gospels. So we've taken from the prophets, we've taken from Deuteronomy and the law, Genesis, we've taken from Revelation, but narrowing it down to the Gospels. What happens at the feet of Christ in the Gospels? We'll keep in mind the corresponding realities of the church um, because it'll come up again, but I'm going to do a number of uh, passages through the Gospels and kind of just outline this. This will be a little bit quicker. Matthew 15, 30, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. Matthew 28, 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Jesus' feet are a place of healing, deliverance, and worship, in addition to the power, dominion, and judgment that we previously observed. Luke 10, 38 and 39. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. This shows the feet of Christ as a place of intimacy and listening to the word of God. Luke 7, 36 through 38. I'm doing pretty good on time. I'm going to read this whole passage. So this one's going to be long. I cut it out. I didn't know if I was going to have time for it. Um, Now, uh, this is starting in verse 36, Luke 7. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing beside behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of this, a person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since I came, the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That is a cool passage. I don't know about you guys. That one gets me every time. <laughs> um, the feet of Christ are a place of devotion and worship. Notice that she wipes Jesus' feet almost as if she's polishing them. Where else have we already observed polished feet? Anybody catch that earlier? In Revelation 1, burnished means polished. In this act of devotion, he is anointed and polished at the feet with her hair and tears and ointment. Feet washing is that imagery. So we can, we'll draw some conclusions in a second. John 13, another famous passage. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. These passages, if woven with our original text from Revelation, may help us consider the foundation of the kingdom of God in the earth. Daniel chapter 2 records the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream concerning the kingdoms of man imaged as a great statue. That statue had feet of clay and iron, which of course is a poor foundation. A kingdom divided, in fact. That's how the passage actually interprets it. In Revelation 1, Jesus' feet are burnished bronze, strong and pure. They are heated as in a furnace. This is a good foundation. 
His kingdom is such that his saints come to his feet to worship, and their prayers and devotion are as incense, sacrifices, and sweet aromas atop the fiery altar in heaven. Revelation 5.8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Revelation 8.3-5, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Throughout the Old Testament, the manifest presence of God is depicted as fire coming down in a cloud on a mountain in the form of a pillar. In filling the temple and lighting the altar itself, both at the tabernacle and the temple, uh, Solomon's temple, the fire of God fell, and that's actually what lit the altar. And And even in consuming the altar and the sacrifice at Mount Carmel. So the point of contact, this is the, this is the image. The point of contact for God's powerful presence on the earth is fiery. And so it's not strange to see an image of burnished bronze feet heated in a furnace, glowing hot and heated regularly. And to see the activity of the saints in their prayers and their worships uh, before the feet of Christ actually contributing to that fire, being part of the fire of God there. This is some cool stuff, but this is kind of what you can start to see when you start to stack them on top of each other. We get a sense for this. And our feet, as we already established, are also a point of contact for the kingdom as it extends through the earth. We carry his presence with us. In John 13, he refers to the disciples as the sent ones. I believe that's one reason, just one, there's others. One reason why we see Jesus wash the disciples' feet. He is purifying their point of contact with the world as his sent ones. Jesus sends us out with purified feet, and dare we say, even polished feet, to be consistent with our image. He has made us totally clean from head to toe, and we are to continue to administer that same purification rite with one another as we continue to step on the serpent's head and tread down the wicked. Treading down the wicked in this sense can cause us to need regular cleaning. The mop-up operation of the kingdom of fleshing out the victory of Christ through the creation can be a messy business. This is why the Lord has provided the church to us to help administer the rites of confession, forgiveness, and the table for the ongoing and regular renewal of the saints. This is how we follow our Lord and teacher's lead. Polish up the saints. Do good to one another. Let your love for one another demonstrate that you are Christ's disciples and his sent representatives. Let the ground that you tread upon be purified and cleared of his enemies by the manifest presence of God in your lives. And may we come to him today for renewed purification and union. May we find ourselves at his feet today, expectant, devoted, and worshipful. Remember, this is just one of the dozen or the 19 or so images of Christ in the first chapter of Revelation. And it was far from exhaustive. If each of those images was borne out thoroughly, I assume that would keep us all busy for many months. And how much clearer would we then perceive Christ? 
How much more intimately would we consider him if we knew how to speak the language of the Holy Spirit in images throughout the whole of Scripture? How much more fully would we be equipped to share with him with this sinful and share him with this sinful and needy world? Don't let your imagination run about unfettered, but rather fetter it to Christ and be consumed in your heart and mind with the images of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have preserved for us through time in the sovereignty of God and the Holy Spirit, your word that teaches us how to see you. Thank you that you send your spirit to open the eyes of our heart that we may perceive you more clearly, more fully. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the light of the length and the height and the depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, that we would be able to perceive you with new eyes, with our, with our whole hearts, our whole mind, and even our imagination trained on you, that you would open us up to see your glory, both today in your word and also in the worship in a few minutes, but that you would give us a new depth of love and that we would cherish you greater after today from here on out. I bless you, Lord Jesus, and we give you this this time. Amen.